0: Hey everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge.
1: There is a thing among Clackamas County that Clackamas County is the metro county that gets left behind when it comes to the three. And there's nothing better at illustrating that than this tolling proposal. We do want those dollars to be split with the counties and the city. So the gas tax, what we need is a system that isn't going to disproportionately impact Clackamas County, low-income folks and commuters. And it's just frustrating to be interacting with a department which is telling
0: us that there is no other way this is the way Way we have to do it. All right, folks. Today I was very excited to talk to my friend Adam Marle. Adam is an Oregon City City Commissioner. He is the president of the Oregon City Commission, or at least he was. And when he was appointed to the City Commission, he's since been elected, he was the youngest city commissioner ever and the first ever Asian American appointed to the Oregon City City Commission. He was fresh off of a recall campaign of the mayor of Oregon City. This is a very fascinating story that we discuss in today's episode. But Adam's a very interesting person. He's an independent-minded person. He is a Republican. He identifies as evangelical and conservative. But I assure you that the assumptions that you hold for those words won't necessarily apply to Adam and how he conceives of himself as a political actor, as a local politician. And as he describes in the piece that he wrote for Oregon 360, the piece is called How Oregon Republicans Can Further the Cause of Life in a Pro-Choice State. And I think, again, in the piece, you'll find something that you agree with. I found stuff that I agreed with and would like to work on. It's about like putting aside culture war issues and talking about what some people call kitchen table issues, what some people call economic issues. He cites a piece of Mitt Romney legislation at the federal level that he draws some inspiration from. And it's a super interesting conversation. We talk a lot about politics, political ideologies, identity. We also, I think, importantly, an important section in the podcast is the conversation about Clackamas County. Clackamas County is an incredibly important county in the state, politically and economically. It's a swing county that goes, kind of vacillates between voting for Democrats and Republicans, and sometimes both in the same cycle. So we talked to Adam a little bit about why he thinks that is and what his experience is with the politics of Clackamas County. We also talk about tolling, an issue that is very important to folks in Clackamas County. Adam is on a Clackamas County committee that is on tolling, specifically about diversion, but also the broader tolling strategy. And he has a nuanced take on that issue, as you would expect from someone who has nuanced takes on a lot of issues that easily get boiled down into more of the divisive political world. But with that, I will stop talking and we will get right into the episode with Adam Marl. Thank you, as always, for listening to this podcast. If you're not a subscriber on YouTube, please subscribe today. Our subscribers continue to grow and our producer, Buddy Terry, will remind all of us that it helps us reach more people when our subscription base grows. So please subscribe today on YouTube if you haven't already. And with that, we'll jump into the interview with Adam.
1: Now that the legislative session is over, it's time for Oregon's activists, candidates, and political committees to turn their attention to the 2024 elections. With government regulation of political activities becoming more complicated nearly every year, and with political actors increasingly initiating complaints and litigation to achieve political goals, having experienced legal counsel has become critical to success in the political arena. Harang Long PC has represented clients involved in candidate and ballot measure elections for decades. To learn more about Harang Long's political law practice, check out our website at harang.com. That's
0: www.harang.com. All right, City
1: Commissioner Adam Marl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. I've been a huge fan of this show
0: since the beginning, and I'm just really grateful to be here. You were one of our initial listeners when we were having like four listeners on a YouTube episode. (laughs) Thank you. So I think that you, I thought that you would be an interesting guest for a long time, not because you're a local elected official, although there's some interesting stuff we'll talk about happening in Clackamas County, but there was a very interesting saga that happened before you were an elected official that involved a former mayor. Of Oregon City, who you led a recall campaign against. Were you the, like the chief petitioner of the recall? Was that the title? I was the
1: campaign manager.
0: Campaign manager. Okay. So, folks who are listening to this episode now will know by now that Representative Paul Holvey was subject to a recall. Paul Holvey won his recall election with over 90% of the vote, an overwhelming landslide victory, which I think is evidence that recalls are, you know, very case-specific, like voters are not, I don't think, prone to like saying yes on a recall. I wasn't sure what was going to happen in your recall. But can you kind of set the stage a little bit for listeners who might not be super familiar with what that was about?
1: Of course. So this was in the spring of 2020. All of this was starting right as COVID was beginning to kick off, right as All of these racial justice protests were beginning to really take steam. And so we were at a very transformative time in our nation and in our state. And because of all of these events that were going on, our mayor took it to himself to make certain comments about these events that were going on that many in the community felt were offensive, were out of line, and presented some legal trouble to our community. He actually wanted to reopen, I believe, in April of 2020. I think he beat out Ron DeSantis in his <laughs> reopening of our community and oh, a, a lot of concerns about that. And we got a letter from the Attorney General saying, you can't do that. And because of the increased attention that our local mayor was getting on our community, that's When people began to realize a lot of other things in his background, the fact that he was a domestic abuser, the fact that he had violated election law, he had less than a 50% attendance rate, he had shady business dealings with developers. And so, being in a local elected office requires the ability to have partnerships. And he clearly did not have the ability to do that and represent Oregon City effectively. And so, that's really what kicked off this recall. um, What started with people just paying more attention because of his comments turned into people paying more attention because of all of the other things in his history that made him ineffective to be mayor, but something that people didn't realize because people don't tend to follow their local governments until something terrible happens.
0: See, this is what I was going to ask as a follow-up is that I think for those of us in politics, like it kind of, I don't want to say it makes sense, but we could understand how that kind of situation could develop. But for people who aren't working in politics, I think they would look at a situation like that, hear the description you just gave, and be like, how does a guy like that get elected mayor? Oregon City is not a small town, right? Like, Oregon City is a relatively sizable suburban community. What is your theory (laughs) on how a person like your former mayor could become the leader of the city?
1: Well, I think that you will hear from a lot of his former allies that he Did change upon his election as mayor. We had Mm -hmm. former mayors support this recall. All of his fellow commissioners supported this recall. Many of those people also supported him when he ran. I voted for him when he ran. And so, what you heard from a lot of people was that he was just a different person prior to that. He was on the city commission before that. He was a school board member before that. So he was a well-established figure in our community who still had a lot of the same issues, but those weren't things that people really cared about because there was a sense that he was able to get things done. And that was evidenced by the people who were supporting him, who then went on to support our recall because something happened with all of those crazy events in 2020. I think that might've made him snap and uh, go on a rampage
0: on certain issues. So why did you care so much about this? You were a young person. You could have been doing lots of things at this time, but you devoted what I imagine was a large chunk of your life during that period to winning this campaign. So what? why were you so drawn to this race? So I've always been really passionate about local and state government.
1: It's something that I think is too often overlooked, especially because these levels of government are where you're most likely to impact the decisions that are going to affect your own backyard, literally your own backyard. These are the levels of government where you're most likely to personally know the person who's representing you. And so the fact that we have so much focus at the federal level, while those issues are important, it's at the expense of the local decisions that are being made that are going to affect you immediately and that are going to affect your actual daily life. And so when I figured out that this was happening in my own community and that it was representing the people of Oregon City wrong to the rest of the state. It was something that I felt I had to get involved with. The reason I came on as campaign manager was because I just went to public comment during this process. A bunch of people signed up for public comment at a city commission meeting. Uh uh, Someone who was trying to get this ball rolling reached out to me and asked if I would kickstart this campaign after he saw
0: me speak. Interesting. That's cool. So you win the campaign. Do you remember the numbers, what the yes vote was? We won with 68% of the vote. Okay, so pretty overwhelming majority. You win the election, and then almost immediately afterwards, you somehow get drafted into being a city commissioner. How does that story unfold? So after we recalled him, we had to hold a special election
1: the following spring, and the person we elected was one of the sitting city commissioners. And so that opened a vacancy on the city commission. This was not on my radar at all. I was in my final term of college. I felt like I had done my work to get the mayor recalled, but one of the commissioners actually reached out to me and they encouraged me to run. And then I heard from a few more people. So I threw my hat in the ring, not really knowing what to expect. There was a former city commissioner who applied for the vacancy there was a former school board member who applied for the vacancy mm-hmm. there was someone who's high up in our local newspaper who applied for it and so i didn't know what to expect especially being a 20 year old at the time with relatively <laughs> little experience in local government apart from the recall but it was a unanimous decision and i am very grateful that they took the chance on me
0: that's wild okay so well for, so what's your theory on why you was it because you were such a prominent leader of the recall campaign and They thought that that was somehow like a representation of what voters were looking for, or did you have relationships with these folks, or what's your theory on how the 20-year-old kid beats out the other, other candidates? Yeah, so we
1: built a very broad coalition in order to make that recall successful we had conservatives we had liberals we had everyone in between behind this because there was something in the mayor's background who could appeal to, to <laughs> everybody everyone. was mad about something <laughs> exactly and so i made a conscious decision not to make it about the culture war issues that were going on at the time uh-huh. and because of that we were able to win with such a broad margin because people from all across the political spectrum felt passionately about this and so because of that broad engagement that I undertook as the campaign manager, I think they felt that I would do a good job at bringing the community together after a very
0: painful time in our history. Hmm. So you get appointed to the council, and I'm pretty sure at the time you're like, all right, I will fill the rest of this term. I'm not going to run for reelection. I want to do other things. And then fast forward a couple of years and your name ends up on the ballot. So why the change of heart? Do you love elected office? Are you enjoying what you're doing? What's the rationale? The biggest part was the more
1: time you spend in office, the more you realize the things that you want to affect, the different areas you want to see changed and fixed and reformed and made better for the community. And so as I alluded to earlier, I didn't have a whole lot of local government experience heading into this. And so there was a huge learning curve. And as I learned more and more about the systems and about the departments, about the people that I work with, it made me feel more passionate about the things that I actually wanted to impact. And so I also did feel that having the representation that I bring as a young person is really important. This is something that is actually increasing across the region. In Clackamas County, I think we're a great example. We elected a young Westland city councilor who is now the mayor. We have a young Gen Z elected official in Gladstone. And then there's myself. And in all three of our elections, we were the top vote getters. And so if there's anyone out there who's a young person thinking about whether they should do it, take Clackamas County as an example, because we were the
0: ones who surprised our communities and ended up with the most votes. So we're going to talk about Clackamas County in just a moment. But before we do that, just so I think folks listening to your description here might make some assumptions about who you are and what you believe that might not be true. So can you describe your political beliefs and where you fall on the spectrum?
1: So I consider myself to be a conservative Republican. I grew up in an evangelical household. And I grew up believing in traditional conservative Republican values. But one thing I really appreciated was in my high school years and my college years, pretty much everyone in my life, my friends, my professors and teachers that I respected were people who disagreed with me. And so it's not necessarily that it changed my mind on issues, but it changed my mind on how I approach these issues with difficult conversations and what it looks like to compromise, what it looks like to have an evangelical Christian faith in a pluralistic society. And so while I consider myself to be conservative, the way that I approach
0: these issues is with compromise and uh, trying to get things done. In your experience on the city commission in Oregon City, does the political party label or political ideology, does it come up? Does it impact how things work? Or do people kind of just show up in nonpartisan roles and we don't really think or talk about the outside political dynamics? What's your experience? I've been pleasantly surprised
1: by how well we have been able to operate as a nonpartisan local elected body. There was a time when I was the only Republican on the city commission that recently changed because one of them changed parties. But the fact still remains that for someone who is a consistent Republican, the issue of partisanship hasn't really come up for me. It's the issues of land use and development. And that's one thing that's really fascinated me is how in both parties, You see a big divide on land use and development and housing. Mm -hmm. You have contingents in both parties who are on very opposite ends for very different reasons, but you can find some odd coalitions showing up every once in a while. And those are really the issues that we deal with in local government, where I've been surprised to see unusual allies and partnerships
0: show up where I wouldn't have expected it. Mm -hmm. So speaking of unusual allies and partnerships, I think Clackamas County is one of the most unusual or unique counties, at least politically, in this state. So people all know Multnomah County. It's deep blue and reliably elects a slate of people who sort of all adhere to, I think, a similar set of beliefs about the world and how government should work. Washington County, I think, has had a more traditional flip from, I'd say, like Chamber of Commerce style Republicans in the 90s and 2000s to more progressive suburban Democrats. Now, although it's still a split county with some Republican voices, Clackamas County, on the other hand, is just like an entirely separate category. (laughs) It's like you'll have like a Democratic majority and you'll have a Republican majority and you'll have incredibly extreme Republican figures get elected. There's controversial things happening left, right and center over there. Before we talk about the I guess the like some of the issues at play, can you just describe what is your understanding of the politics of Clackamas County. Is it just a a swing county or is there more to the behavior of voters in Clackamas County? Well, we
1: are a swing county. There's this New York Times tool where you can enter your address and see the voter registration of the thousand people closest to your address. And I did it for my house and said that 42% of my neighbors are Democrats, 40% of them are Republicans, and 18% are independent, not affiliated. And I think that that is a microcosm of Clackamas County as a whole. we It's hard to explain the ways that we go in certain elections. Last year, we went for Christine Drazen and Ron Wyden. In 2020, we voted for Joe Biden handily, but that was the same year we also elected a conservative majority on our county commission. And so it's important Mm -hmm. to recognize that beyond just the partisan labels, we are the most rural of the metro counties, and that plays a big deal in how we elect our elected officials. And so we are a swing county and that it's produced some pretty interesting results over the
0: years. How does the, the <laughs> I'm tempted to ask about individuals, but I won't. How does the, <laughs> ju- just describe the Clackamas County Commission as it stands. Like you can talk about the names of the people or whatever, but like, what's the political dynamic on the commission? Cause it, every person is, runs countywide, right? Yes. Okay. So how does it stand
1: today? So it, right now, we after this last election, we also elected another Republican. And so it's a four to one Republican majority with
0: Martha Schrader as the lone Democrat. Mm. And Martha Schrader has been at the county for what? probably close to 10 years or more. Quite a while, yes. Okay, so we've leveled set a little bit about, you know, who you are, what's going on in Clackamas County, how the politics works. I want to ask about a very hot button issue, I think, in Clackamas County, maybe more than any other place in this state, which is tolling. So you serve on, a, it's a county committee, right? The committee you sit yes. on? Yeah, and there are representatives from each city in Clackamas County. I see. Okay. And it's about I-205 specifically, which folks from the metro area will know runs through a big chunk of Clackamas County and some of the more populous cities in the county. Give us your overview on tolling. And I mean, where things stand right now, right, is like there's the governor announced a sort of moratorium. We're not moving forward on this. Legislative approval was granted, I think, four or five years ago-ish but we're in a moratorium. ODOT has since come out with some statements about what that moratorium has cost in terms of projects not moving forward. I think 205, they said they're not doing the lane expansion. So what does your community think about this? And what do you think about this, like tolling broadly? Well, before I get into this,
1: this is another area where I think also factors heavily into Clackamas County's political dynamics. Uh There is a feeling among Clackamas County uh, writ large that Clackamas County is the metro county that gets left behind when it comes to the three. And there's nothing better at illustrating that Uh, than this tolling proposal, which plans to toll a stretch of I-205 in Clackamas County before the regional tolling project that would also affect Multnomah and Washington counties. And so we were not excited about their original tolling proposal. After the governor issued her a moratorium, we thought that was a win. But for us, it's been anything but. Mm -hmm. The first thing is that this tolling moratorium, I think, has communicated to our citizens that they can let off the gas with their activism and their engagement in this process. And I'm worried that this moratorium will depress future activities when it comes to advocating against this tolling plan at the legislative level. But on the other hand, the way that ODOT has rolled out their revised plan due to the lack of funding from the tolling happening as soon as possible, like you said, it includes taking away the third lane expansion. And regardless of where you stand on lane expansions on highways. This is the only stretch of I-205 that does not have three lanes. It is a bottleneck. It crosses the Abernathy Bridge, which is just terrible during rush hour. And so not only did they take away the lane expansion that was supposed to come with the tolling revenues, but they've actually, they've removed another one of the tolling areas so that it's strictly in the Abernathy Bridge area, which when we're talking about diversion, which is one of the biggest things that I hear every day from my constituents, when you have it in that one area, there are so many other avenues you can take to divert from that
0: traffic. Diversion basically meaning for listeners who aren't steeped in transportation policy, instead of paying the toll, you take an exit and you navigate through urban arterials or city streets to get back on the roadway after you've passed the tolling stanchions, basically, right? Right. And so we have another small bridge
1: that also Mm -hmm. crosses parallel to the Abernathy Bridge that directly abuts to our main street. And so we're very concerned about the effects it's going to have on our main street businesses, Oregon city won the great American main street award in 2018. And we're at risk of losing everything that brings people there in the first place, because we're concerned that it's going to become a parking lot with all the diversion that's going to come. One thing that could be a positive that we're hearing from engineers is that the diversion there is already so bad that people might just want to stay on the toll and Hmm. pay. And so, but that when you come to the actual payment of the toll and the inequitable impacts it has whether you're just someone wanting to cross the bridge to go pick up your child or run your errands. It's a totally inequitable solution to something that we do need to be having a conversation about, which is congestion and how we're getting people around our communities, and most importantly, how we're going to fund our transportation system. And that's one area where local elected officials are really stepping up and talking about how we understand that the declining gas tax revenues is hurting our communities. And we don't want to be pushing back against tolling just because we don't want it. We also want to be a part of the conversation about how to make up that. That lost revenue. We just know that we can be a lot more
0: creative about it than just looking at tolls. I was just going to ask you that as my follow up, because I think you mentioned this in the recall campaign. There's a broad coalition of people who might support the recall for different reasons. Similarly, there are some people who are like no tolling ever that's unorgonian and we will not accept it in this state. And then there's other people who are like, no, it's actually this proposal that's unfair or the way it's being unveiled to us that's unfair or the timing that's unfair or the location of the specific tolls that's unfair. And I do think it's important in any conversation, I probably should have level set better before we jumped in and you've alluded to this. There is a reality happening in this state that has to do with the automobile market that is leading to ODOT being fiscally underwater, right? There's more electric vehicles, there's higher fuel efficiency, and that trend on both fronts is escalating quickly. And when you have a transportation system where the revenue is based primarily, not exclusively, but largely on a gas tax, it's very easy to see how insolvency could happen quickly. So the question then becomes, okay, if we can't rely on a gasoline tax to fund our transportation infrastructure, which is what we've historically done along with a couple of other revenue streams, how do we ensure that we can still have a modern and sustainable and effective system of transportation? So I guess what I'm curious from you as someone who is representing your city in these conversations about what you want, polling specifically, but transportation more broadly to look like in Clackamas County, Is the position that you have or your colleagues have in Clackamas County, like, we don't want tolling at all, or we don't want it here first, or we want the money to be spent in specific ways? Like, what's the framework you're bringing to the, like, tolling conversation? So, the first thing about the funding is
1: we do want those dollars to be split with the counties and the cities. So, the gas tax as it is now is 50% to the state, 30% to the counties, 20% to the cities. Mm-hmm. If the tolling does occur, we want that same revenue sharing from the tolling revenues to deal with the diversion that we know is going to happen, that is already happening and is already bad. So, we want that money to be able to deal with that. We've talked about uh, interest in pursuing an express lane option. So So not tolling all the lanes, but tolling one of the lanes. And if people choose to pay for it, they can make their trip faster. That's something that we've talked about. And then there's another, there are proposals like vehicle miles traveled, fees, There are vehicle registration fees, which we already do have in place, and none of these are more popular, but they're not going to cause the diversion issues that are the primary cause of concern from this tolling project. And that concern is going to exist regardless of whether the tolling plan is implemented regionally across all three metro counties or just Clackamas County first and then the others, which is the current plan. That's another area where we do feel like we're being left out behind the other counties, But in the end, it comes down to the diversion, the way that this money is being shared with us, and the general feeling among local elected officials across Clackamas County that when we try and reach out to ODOT, that we're not getting the answers we need to make decisions, to make informed decisions. So as an example, we're going through this exercise right now of submitting so-called nexus projects. So these are projects that we decide in local communities are going to be affected by tolling diversion. These are not in any way backed by fact because our transportation system plans, which is what guides our local transportation investments, those were not created with regional tolling in mind. And so when they're asking us to submit all these supplemental projects that we would like to see funded as a way of essentially buying us off to support the tolling, we're not even able to submit projects that we know are going to be affected because we don't have the data to support that. So we're just shooting in the dark. We're working with our other communities to make sure that we're all united together so that they can't pick off any one individual city. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it's come to some pretty embarrassing tactics to try and buy off support for, uh, for a project that's been rolled out so terribly, where the public trust has been absolutely lost, and where every time there seems to be a reset in this process, like the moratorium, And all the things that have been happening the first part of this year
0: have not given us the positive
1: results that we were told we would receive.
0: Hmm. So what is the next big thing? What's the next development or milestone in this conversation that you're kind of looking forward to?
1: So in December, the Oregon Department of Transportation is going to be submitting their revised plan to the governor. But what I'm most interested in seeing is in the next long session when there's a conversation about the next transportation package, that's something where I think you're going to see a lot of local elected officials in the Hall of the Capitals advocating for looking at more creative funding models. Because again, we do not disagree that there needs to be more funding for our roads and our bridges. We deal with that every single day in our communities. What we need is a system that isn't going to disproportionately impact Clackamas County, that isn't going to disproportionately impact low-income folks and commuters. There are other ways to do this, and it's just frustrating to be interacting with a department which, by the way, is acting under the guidance of the legislature, but is telling us that there is no other way. This is the way we have to do it.
0: Interesting conversation that I'm very much looking forward to, and we'll have to have you back to talk more about that as the situation unfolds. But I do want to have some time in this podcast to talk about a piece you just wrote for Oregon 360. It's called How Oregon Republicans Can Further the Cause of Life in a Pro-Choice State, which is a fascinating premise to start with. Oregon famously, I think, is the only state in the country without any restrictions when it comes to access to abortion. But your piece is not actually about abortion politics very much. It's actually more about like culture war politics. You start with a quote from a different podcast. What's this gentleman's name? The VeggieTales guy? Phil Vischer. Yeah, he's the creator of VeggieTales. (laughs) Phil Vischer said, poverty is hurting a lot more kids than drag queen story hour. What does that mean for you? Why does that stand out to you? So as an evangelical Christian, I have attended
1: the same evangelical church for my entire life I am steeped in these culture war conversations that are happening at the national level and have been trickling down to our local communities. And while it's important to have conversations, for example, about how we educate our children, which has always been a contentious topic throughout American history, I do believe that it's important to have those conversations. But they're coming to a point where we're focusing solely on that at the expense of other policy areas. That can actually have a positive impact for me as someone who considers himself to be pro-life in a state where I know that an abortion ban isn't going to be enacted. I'm interested in looking at ways that we can incentivize people to get married and have children because marriage and uh, child rearing decline is actually a serious national security and economic threat to this country. This is something we're seeing in Japan right now. Their workforce, their pension, their healthcare systems are all going to have to undergo some radical changes in order to keep them solvent. And so as someone who believes that marriage is fundamental to a functioning and moral society, it's important for me to be thinking about ways apart from just yelling it with people who disagree with me about education and actually finding solutions to make people's lives better childhood poverty is a huge issue. I was just reading something about how with the expiration of the expanded child tax credit, that childhood poverty has doubled this year from what it was last year. And that's still, the fact still remains that even when it was at historic lows, that it is the most impoverished age demographic in the nation. And so for someone who wants to be pro-life it's important for me that we're pro-life not just in the womb but outside of it into the grave and that includes looking at healthcare and childcare maternal care and all of these different things that factor into an actually well-lived life.
0: Okay, so there's so many questions that come up from this. I think it's such an interesting conversation. So first maybe let's define culture war. I don't know how long the term has been around but I when I think of culture war I think of like 90s and 2000s era where like we're talking abortion politics, we're talking gay marriage at the time. Although I think in terms of contemporary culture war, we're talking about LGBT inclusion in curriculum. We're talking about gender inclusive restrooms for trans students. We're talking sometimes about athletic competition and whether trans students should be eligible to participate. What else do you consider? How do you think about what culture war means? We've seen the last few years, especially during COVID when A lot
1: of parents were more involved every day in their children's education, that that's really become the top culture war issue, at least that I'm always hearing about from people and that I still hear about on social media to this day. And like I said, it's important to have tough conversations about how we educate our children, about how we're raising our future voters, our future leaders. That's very important. But the ways that we're having these conversations are leaving out very important facts, like the ones that I just mentioned about childhood poverty. If we're going to talk about caring for our children, that does have to include conversations about education, but it can't be at the expense of talking about poverty and health care and maternal care and housing.
0: So I have potentially an awkward question. I actually don't know. So I've heard a lot, like I have a couple of conservative friends at the national level who Alex, our our former co-host knows, who has talked about needing Pro marriage policies, like trying to incentivize more folks to get married, make it easier. You mentioned a story that is actually incredibly tragic and made me very sad about a person who chose not to get like they chose to get married, but not legally, because there's actually some financial some economic disincentives for them to have actually legally wed. So they just did a ceremony, which again, incredibly sad and seems silly that we have a policy framework that incentivizes that. Does this include LGBT marriages in this conception? There's different, I think this is a division in the conservative world, but like on one hand, I think more modern conservatives would say, yes, a nuclear family is a nuclear family. And like a kid is best served by having two parents. And then there's still some like 1990s ideology left over saying, no, marriage, one man, one woman, that's what's best for kids. I'm curious if you have thoughts on how inclusive you conceive of a pro-marriage policy. Well,
1: for me, that does include LGBT families. This is, so I've talked several times about my evangelical upbringing, uh-huh. and this is something that I want to get into, is how the term evangelical has been politicized over the years. Okay. Um, well, now it means something a lot more political than its original usage, which was a theological use. I saw this article a couple years ago, I think in 2021, where they talked about how among self-identified evangelicals, 40% of them reported going to church once a year or less. And so that really illustrates wow. how the uh, the usage of the term evangelical nowadays is coming more and more to symbolize your political affiliation rather than your theological beliefs. Oh, that's so
0: super interesting.
1: This leaves out an even bigger conversation about how the African-American community is a huge theologically evangelical group, but politically, they're on a completely different side. And so for me as an evangelical, with all of that background in place about how I consider myself to be theologically conservative and evangelical, is the simple fact that I believe that in a God who is loving and a God who makes us Perfect and in his image, not without our flaws, but one who in the end is going to be making decisions that I don't have to worry about. And so I support LGBT families. We hear from pro-life conservatives a lot about how they want to incentivize adoption. Well, we're leaving out a whole lot of families, if we're not including LGBT families who I'm sure would be more than open to be adopting children who are in unfortunate circumstances.
0: And that's something that we leave out too often. One of the times where I've got like, I can do pretty, one of my, my strengths, I think as a podcast host is I can talk about most issues, including ones that impact me personally and, you know, remain pretty, you know, from a a perspective of listening and learning and trying to understand another perspective. The one time, not on this podcast, but the one time where I've gotten... Like emotionally angry was a conversation about LGBT adoption with a conservative friend who, <laughs> who thought that that should be not that he was against gay people adopting, but that he thought and you may actually hold this belief too. He thought that adoption agencies, particularly religiously affiliated adoption agencies, should be able to discriminate based on status. We're actually not going to talk about that, like it's because that's not what your piece is about. <laughs> but just an aside, I want to read three sentences from your piece that I found interesting, and then ask you. Maybe to diagnose why you think there's a disconnect or a dissonance. And this is from the last paragraph of your piece. The U.S. is one of only seven countries without a national paid leave policy. I'm assuming it's like seven more developed countries. One of only seven countries without a national paid family leave policy. The U.S. is also one of about a dozen countries allowing elective abortions after 15 weeks. The former should be just as startling for pro-family conservatives as the latter. But you and I both probably will acknowledge that it is not nearly as startling to most conservative voters in this country as the statistic about paid family leave. Why is that? Why is there a disconnect that abortion is such an animating issue for these voters in a way that like parents not being able to be with their kids after they have them is not startling? What is driving the disconnect there?
1: Well, and, and I'll just start off by acknowledging that it's crazy to me how more of my friends in my party don't recognize how it is anti-family to support policies or at least not want to enact policies that prevent new moms from being with their children at such Mm -hmm. a formative time in their life. A policy that I get into in the piece that prevents women from wanting to have children in the first place because they can't afford it or because of the fact that they're getting pregnant that they choose to have an abortion. And so I don't This is way above my pay scale as a local elected official, (laughs) Um, and this isn't something I deal with as a local elected official, but as a Republican, it's something that I feel we have to have a bigger conversation about because we're too often stuck with topics that apply only to a child in the womb. And we're not talking about what happens once they're finally born and the fact that we don't have social safety nets in place that will actually take care of them. And so I don't know why we haven't had those conversations in the past, but Senator Mitt Romney has has a proposal and it's not perfect, but it starts the discussion about what it means to actually be pro-life for the entire life. And that's really what I was trying to arouse in this piece is that we need to have that conversation as Oregon Republicans, because we know that with our very lax abortion laws, there are still ways that we can decrease the amount of women who are seeking to have an abortion by making sure that they have the care in place and the systems in place to actually raise a family and have children.
0: Yeah, I like that. And I also think that the vocabulary, the language is really important here, too, because if you tell me you want to advance pro-life policy, my starting point is like, I'm not interested. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to have that conversation. <laughs> That's totally contrary to my values and beliefs as a progressive Democrat. Like, But if you say, I want to enact pro-family policies, which you say in the piece, and I want to talk about how to make young moms and young families more economically secure. That is a policy that I think there's a pretty broad coalition in this country and in the state who would want to advance those policies and who would acknowledge, I think, I hope that we are woefully insufficient in the status quo. But yeah, when it's couched in, I think that the challenge is how do you attract people? I think what you're trying to do in this piece is attract people who might accept that pro-life label, but might This sort of like, I don't want to call it economic progressivism because you probably wouldn't like that language. (laughs) But like this, go ahead.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you say that because I do consider myself to be fiscally conservative. And by fiscally conservative, I mean that I believe that we should be spending money on things that deserve our attention and are worth public investment. And as a pro-family conservative, I believe that family is one of the most important things that keeps our society running. And so, again, as a fiscal conservative, I don't know why I wouldn't have those
0: values reflected in what I want invested in by the government. Mm. So zooming out here a little bit, the senator who you mentioned in this piece, Mitt Romney, familiar person to most political observers. By the way, have you seen the Netflix documentary Mitt? Love it. It's, yeah. Yeah, it is very good. I think regardless of people's politics, they will enjoy it. Very good. Very good documentary. He's retiring. He's leaving the United States Senate. And when he leaves, the number of people who I think have an interest and willingness on the Republican side of taking this kind of a stance seems to be waning, seems to be diminishing. That's my perception. Someone who, again, knows less about the Republican Party than you do. But like before we started, I was I brought this up like feels like there was a, an internal debate in the party over the last, you know, six or eight years, maybe a little farther. Maybe you could go back to the Tea Party in 2010, where there's some like tension about what the beliefs of the party should be. And it seems like the Mitt Romney wing kind of lost and might be. Do you agree with that conception? Or do you have more optimism about what's possible within the Republican Party? Well, I would definitely agree that right now that contingent has lost. It's
1: very telling when you have people describing Mitt Romney as a moderate or a centrist. He's not (laughs) a moderate and he's not a centrist. He's a conservative. But what gets that label attached to you is your willingness to work with other people, that you're a squishy middle person who doesn't have any values. And that's really unfortunate. Not that it's wrong to be a moderate either. But Mitt Romney is just not one of them. That contingent has lost in the Republican Party. But one thing that keeps me optimistic is that in study after study and poll after poll, young people are showing that young Republicans are demonstrating that they do care about climate change. They do care about being economically sustainable, not just in how we tax and spend, but how we actually invest those dollars in real human beings, like I talk about with healthcare and childcare and housing and all that. And so while the current Republican Party does have a lot of growing to do. What keeps me optimistic is that young Republicans are actually open and passionate about these things that I'm talking about in this piece.
0: hmm hmm The final question or category of questions maybe that I have for you is about identity. So in your piece, you use the label Evangelical as an identity, you use the label conservative, Republican. We've talked about age. In some of the reporting, though, it mentions that you were the first Asian person to serve on the city commission. And there's this interesting, I think, like the, the way, the monolithic way that we often talk about people of color doesn't make sense in political context, right? Like we say, oh, <laughs> people of color are voting more for Donald Trump. And it's like, that is just such a large category. Even Asian American, it's just such a large category where there's, too many. But I'm curious, like for you as an Asian American person, how does that identity impact your worldview and political views? Well, it isn't just that I'm Asian
1: American, but it's also that I'm an adoptee. I'm an international adoptee from South Korea, grew up with a white family and Oregon City is a very white community. And so those all play into my identity, Mm -hmm. how it's reflected in my politics. But for me, never being Asian enough to be an Asian American because I grew up in a white culture, but also not being white enough to be a white person in a predominantly Mm -hmm. white culture puts you in this odd middle spot. And Mm. when I talk about how that reflects to my politics, I think that the translation between the two becomes pretty evident because I find myself in the middle ground a lot. Mm. You're finding yourself in a space where you're trying to figure out how to communicate one side to the other when there's no willingness among the members of those different groups to actually do it themselves, trying to communicate different beliefs that you may not have, but are trying to share with other people because it's important to have dialogue with people with whom you disagree and so being in that middle ground both racially and politically is something that has dominated my life in the public sphere and in politics and it's something that gets very tiring because Hmm. people don't love when you uh there's this quote from margaret thatcher that people standing in the middle of the road get run over on both sides and that's pretty much how it feels because when you have people on both sides who agree with you on some things, but think you're a traitor on other things, you're going to get attacks from both sides. And so it's difficult, but it's something that we need. And the fact that it's vanishing in in our elected spheres is very
0: disheartening. So how do you navigate that on a personal level as a politician, as a community leader? Like my theory on that, is the only way you overcome, the only way you, you even have a chance of overcoming some of these powerful national trends of polarization and divisiveness is through relationship building and just building as many relationships as you can with a diverse set of people, like show people what your values are, but also show people that you're human and you have some humility and Like, what about you? Like, especially given the added, you know, racial dynamic where, I mean, I don't know, I can imagine in a political context that some of your allies might make assumptions and derogatory assumptions about who you are as a young Asian person, and particularly someone who's like, you know, been unafraid to do things that their party leadership might not be thrilled with. So I'm kind of curious how you personally navigate that if you have strategies that you've tried. Well, that's just one more
1: reason why I love local government, which is nonpartisan. We were talking about the recall earlier, and the fact that I, a Republican, was leading the campaign to recall my Republican mayor did not make me many friends with our local party leadership. It's funny, uh, I was working for the time for a Republican candidate, Mm -hmm. and one of his endorsements was from the mayor who I was working to recall. And so once (laughs) the mayor found out that I was working for this person, he called up my candidate and said. If you don't fire him, I'm going to revoke my endorsement. And fortunately, my client understood that his endorsement wasn't really going to help him in the first place. And so I was able to keep my job. But when it comes to local government and the fact that you're dealing with people who want to make sure that their road is paved or that, that you're dealing with land use and housing and things that don't traditionally fall into the culture war type partisan divide, that's something that I really enjoy about being in local government. I've been able to partner with the most conservative Clackamas County commissioners and with the most liberal mayors in the county to advance things that are truly advancing things that were that are going to benefit residents of Oregon City and Clackamas County. And so it's just so important again for people to be involved with that because those are the decisions that are impacting your daily lives.
0: Hmm. Adam, we are coming up on an hour, and I love this conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. If folks heard something you said and it piqued their interest or they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? You can follow
1: my Facebook. It's City Commissioner Adam Marl, and that's where I'm active, mostly about Oregon City things. But um, as I demonstrated with the piece I wrote, I'm not afraid to talk
0: about issues that are above my pay grade because it's still the conversation worth having. Awesome. Adam, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Uh, Listeners, thanks so much for listening. And we will see you back here next week. Thanks, everyone.